All right, jumping right in. If you can open up a Bible to 1 John chapter 4, we have just a handful of sermons left in this sermon series. Um, as we uh, walk through the book of 1 John, uh, what we've been saying from the beginning, a short but jam-packed letter that has proven relevant and really timely for us at this time. But I want to go back not too far. January 2018, it was during an acceptance speech at the Golden Globes. Oprah Winfrey famously said this line, quote, Speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. In saying, quote, your truth, Oprah, with her impact and her influence, much of it good and needed in our uh, generation, she brought this phrase, which had been kind of slowly growing in popularity and in this speech really brought it to the mainstream level. So what does your truth mean Exactly. One author at a popular progressive online website defined it as, quote, sometimes you know something is real, even if the world says it's just the way things are. It's a call to activism rooted in the individual story, grounded in personal experience. Your truth, my truth, this growing, what I would call a cultural doctrine, that's what it is, it's a cultural doctrine, has sought to kind of settle the age-old debate of truth by saying, listen, you have your truth, and me, I'll have my truth, and they'll both be rooted in personal, subjective experience, not objective evidence. It's the relativism of truth, and I continue to think, and I've said this before, that I that it is the biggest threat to Christianity in the 21st century. I think it's a bigger threat than any other world religion, even though other world religions, especially in other parts of the world, pose very significant threats. But the doctrine, the religion of saying, everyone find what is true for them, and then live in that truth. Now, as a country, and I can't go too deep into this, we're just in the introduction, but we, we do want to affirm we live in a nation where there should be a freedom of choosing truth, right? That you should have the ability and freedom to find what's true and to live that out. That truth should not be binding on people in any nation. That's never worked out well in history. But nonetheless, a lingering, if not obvious, question emerges at this point. What if your truth isn't true. Well, while the emergence, seemingly emergence of this relativism seems like a new problem for the church, there's truly nothing new under the sun. The enemy's strategy ever since the beginning has been to undermine truth, to undermine God's word in order to lead people astray and keep blinders on their eyes. So starting all the way back in Genesis 3, when the serpent tempted Eve, do you remember the first words of the serpent, the first words of the enemy in Scripture? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that actually true? Undermining truth, undermining the word of God. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new about 2020. The enemy has the same strategy that today that he had then, and the people of God today, like then, will only be as healthy as its commitment to truth. 
And we are in a cultural moment that feels really unstable right now because I think one of the reasons is the attack on truth. Truth of the media, truth of conspiracy theories, truth of election integrity. How many of you in just the last couple of weeks asked yourself the question, but how do I know if it's true? Wherever the truth is dismantled, chaos overcomes order. So what do we do? (laughs) It feels a little helpless. What do we do? John has a word for us this morning, and his primary teaching and application is going to be towards Christian teaching, teaching that about God that comes from professing believers, but I think the principles he will lay out will provide us a framework to, on how to discern any truth claim that we hear. So, that's the build-up. Let's go into the text. Chapter, 1 John chapter 4, we're going to read the full passage and then unpack it, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All right, three major things we're going to see, three major movements, three major kind of commands and exhortations to the church that we're going to see this morning from this passage. Number one, test the teaching. Test the teaching. In this short passage, six verses, John creates a contrast. We've seen contrast. This is John's MO in his letter. He gives you the, the, uh, the left from the right, right, the dark from the light. He always contrasts two ideas together back to back. He says the phrase, from God, six times in that passage I just read, and then says either not from God or from the world six times, creating the contrast. And his point is pretty simple, that all teaching, all teaching is either from God or from the world. And again, just like we saw a few weeks ago, by world in this context, John means the fallen systems under the authority of Satan. The thoughts, the values, the practices, the behaviors, the institutional systems that stand in opposition to God's good and right design. And therefore, John tells the church, not just the pastors, this is to the whole church, he says, test the spirits to see whether, they are not, whether or not they are from God. Meaning, test the teaching you hear from professing believers. That's the context here. Test everything you hear from somebody who professes to be a believer. The word he uses for believe and tests indicate ongoing tests. This is not a one-time thing. This is not doing an original test and then believe it from there on out. But Christians and churches should have a posture of ongoing testing of any teaching that they hear. 
And the reason to test all teaching is because there is an abundance of false teaching out there. And so John is encouraging what I'd call a healthy skepticism amongst Christians. You, as a Christian, should be a healthy skeptic. A common phrase that we learn as young children is, do not believe everything you hear. Right? How many times you tell your kids, they start going to school, they start bringing things back, and they say, okay, I know you were told that by Billy in your science class, but don't believe everything you hear. Don't just believe it, test it. Don't throw it away, don't neglect it, but don't just believe it, test it. It's interesting that the sheer amount of access we have to teaching in our day would have been unfathomable to John when he was writing this letter and to all churches in the first century. In many ways, it was kind of simpler for them back then because the teaching that John is referring to exists within the gatherings of the church. He's telling the church, everything you hear in church, test that because that's the information of Christian teaching. That's your context of Christian teaching. Recall in chapter 2 when we saw John acknowledge that many false teachers have gone out from us, meaning they originated in the church, but then they began peddling a false teaching, and then they left the church. So in some ways, it was kind of a simple. They, they had much less access to information. But today, this charge to the church is not just limited to our gatherings here. It's not just limited to our classes, although it very much includes that. But it extends, as you know, to Christian books, to sermons, and any other teaching you have access to on podcasts, on YouTube, on articles online, on video clips on social media. There's an endless amount of content out there from people who profess to be believers. And that is a major blessing for the church and a major challenge for the church. And the difference between it being either a blessing or a challenge is whether or not you test everything you hear. Well, what should we primarily test it against? John tells us, let me read it again. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Here's the first and primary question to ask about any teaching. What do they say is true about Jesus? If you get Jesus wrong, it unravels everything else. What do they say about Jesus? Jesus himself knew this was the most important question. Do you remember in Mark chapter 8, as Jesus was walking into Caesarea with his disciples, he looked around at this very Gentile village and he said, hey, question for everybody, who does everyone say that I am? His disciples were a little nervous to give him the answer. They're like, well, Jesus, you know, now that you ask, some are saying John the Baptist, others are saying Elijah, others are saying another prophet. It's really across the board, really, Jesus. Nobody really knows who you are. And then Jesus asks them directly. He doesn't even respond to their answers to him. He just asks them now directly, but who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. First time in the Gospel of Mark, halfway through the book, that this gets spoken out loud. Jesus affirms him, but listen to what he says. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, 
but my Father who is in heaven. Discerning who Jesus is is not done by reason alone. It's ultimately a matter of the will. So, okay, this is getting a little heady, but hang with me here. Faith is reasonable, but it's not based solely on reason. Do you get that? Faith is reasonable, but it's not based solely on reason, which is why it's possible to be unbelievably smart and intelligent in this world, like legitimately smart, and yet completely miss the most important eternal thing there is to know, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the reason why that's so possible is because Jesus just told us that this knowledge is not discovered It's not found, it's revealed. The Spirit reveals who Jesus is. Now, we believe by faith that our nature is changed, our will is transformed. We don't transform our will. So it is a reasonable faith, one that is supported by evidence, and we should be advocates of showing the evidence of reasonable faith, but it is not discovered by evidence alone. It takes the work of the Spirit to open the eyes of unbelievers who are blinded by the enemy. And once we have the Spirit of God, we have the proper lenses through which to hear and discern all teaching. What do they say about Jesus? I heard a seminary president, Danny Aiken, say this once. "Um, Tell me what you believe about Jesus, and I can guess 95% of your theology. Everything we believe hinges upon what we believe about the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the sure and steady foundation for all sound doctrine. This is why the early church fought so hard to protect against false teaching, leading to the Council of Nicaea and others from where we get these very rich ancient creeds. And they focused on the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is fully and eternally God. He was not created And Jesus is fully human when he took on flesh. Jesus is one person with two natures, fully God, fully man. Jesus was perfectly sinless, and he went to the cross to atone for, to pay for the sin of all those who believe in him, who would receive the forgiveness of that sin, past sin, present sin, future sin. Jesus died Jesus was buried, and Jesus was raised on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus ascended into heaven where he presides today as the head of the church, and he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell all those who believe. And by repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved. We are united with him. We are in Christ. We are adopted into the family of God. We are no longer of this world, but we are of God. So a believer, just like an ambassador, lives in one kingdom, but represents another kingdom. And churches, like Grace Church, are embassies. We exist in this world on behalf of our king in another world. And the dividing line of all Christian teaching centers on who is Jesus and what Jesus did as objective truth. 
It's the lens through which we evaluate and test all teachers. It's, it's, it's the greater to the lesser principle. If they don't have Jesus right, we can't trust them with anything else. It doesn't mean that they get Jesus right, that they get everything under it right. But if you get Jesus wrong, then everything else begins to unravel. It's the greater to the lesser. It's the most important question to test the teaching who Jesus is, what salvation is, what faith is, these big questions we have, these existential questions we have in this world that everyone has. Paul says in Acts chapter 16, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That is true. That's either true or it's not true. It's not true for some, but then not true for others. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's true if and only if the Lord Jesus we claim to believe is the real Jesus, not a distorted one. So church, test the teaching. The teaching you receive here. The one you get wherever else you get it outside of here. Whatever content you find yourself in front of Christian teaching, test it. Don't just believe it. Test it. That's number one. Number two. Follow the Spirit. So test the teaching. And then number two, follow the Spirit. And here's where we see in verse 4, John connects the, the, the head to the heart. All right? It's been pretty heady now, but now he's moving to the heart. That his exhortation is not just informational, it's pastoral. We've seen it all throughout the letter. He cares so deeply for this church. And he knows that their joy and their victory in Christian life is directly correlated to their ability to discern truth from falsehood. So he pauses to invoke the common reference in the middle of this paragraph. He says, do you see it? Little children. That's the written version of taking a child's face into your hands and saying, look me in the eye for what I'm about to tell you. I've been talking. I can tell you're kind of spaced out. You're not really listening. And I'm taking your hand in my face and saying, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We notice how John in this passage distinguishes the word spirit. The, the uppercase S indicates the singular spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The lowercase S is spirits, indicating the plurality of demonic spirits in this world, which are anti-Christ, which are against Christ. So John is saying, listen, this worldly system is powerful, but it's designed to fail. Because victory has already been declared. The night before Jesus died, he told his disciples in John 16, I have said these things to you, some hard things. He just told them some hard things. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That Greek word Jesus uses for overcome is the same word John uses in verse 4 when he says, you are from God and have overcome them. It's the Greek word nikeo. It means victory. It's the word that inspired the company name Nike. While Nike's motto is just do it, John's motto is Christ did it. 
Christ was victorious in defeating evil. And when he sends the Spirit upon those who believe, the Spirit who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Of all the lines of assurance John is packing into this letter, I find this one the most powerful. This one hit me the hardest. In the middle of a passage about false teaching, because false teaching leads to false living. That's why it's dangerous. It's not just so that you know the right thing. It's that when, when you believe a lie, you then begin to live a lie. But to believe truth is to walk in truth. False teaching is dangerous because it leads to false living. You're living a different story, a story that's not true. But for those who believe truth, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In an unusual year, we can tend to lose sight of things, can't we? When things get just really kind of crazy and they take our gaze and they put our gaze on the things that are happening around us, we, we can fix our eyes elsewhere. And there are times in a Christian's life, for all of us, but I think for many of us, this has happened in 2020, we need to recalibrate. You know what I'm saying? There comes a time where as a Christian you have to refocus our mind and heart on things we already know but tend to get crowded out in difficult times. So church, I wonder if as we approach the end of 2020, we need to recalibrate and be reminded that in Christ we are overcomers. Do you believe you're an overcomer? And I think this single truth, again, going from head to heart, gets very practical for us. Let me very quickly in this second point give you five reasons why this is very practical very quickly. Number one, peace. You're an overcomer. It gives you peace in the midst of difficulty. Jesus said you will have tribulation. He never said it's going to be easy. This world has fallen. And there are sorrows of so many kinds, we can't even count them. But this world is designed to fail. It won't have the last word. And you can be at real peace in the midst of chaos. Why? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Number two, strength. This provides you strength in the face of temptation. This line is what we tell ourselves when the temptation to act upon a sinful urge seems too strong to defend against. Do you guys know what I'm saying? That moment that you know I'm talking about. The blood is rushing. The anger is boiling. You can feel the temperature rising. But we're strong enough to stare down that temptation to sin, to call out the tempter as a liar, who's distorting truth in front of us. Why? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Number three, humility. Humility to remember that it's our, not our works that make us great. It's his work. Not just do it, but Christ did it. And we are included in the promise because he has ransomed us. He slayed the giant. He overcame. So we will overcome. The Spirit humbles you 
Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Number four, freedom. The freedom to serve others. That the Spirit empowers us to live self-sacrificial lives. Remember we saw that last week. To live self-sacrificial lives and pour ourselves out for the good of others. To walk as Jesus walked. To live as Jesus lived. Because we've been given everything we need in Him. You know what this means for us? This is so practical for us. We have the freedom to stop staring at ourselves. And our situation. And what's going on with us. And we have the opportunity to serve and build up others just to get our eyes off ourselves. Man, isn't it exhausting just to think about yourself all the time? Isn't it just exhausting just to always think about, am I good? Is this best for me? What can I do better? How can I get richer? How can I get happier? Isn't that just exhausting? You are free to serve others. Why? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then number five, joy. Brothers and sisters, you can have joy in this life. Whoever said that the true Christian should be a miserable person who's just constantly mad at people and mad at the world and mad at the church is a terrible giver of advice. Even the suffering Christian is a joyful Christian because that which is most important about you is that which is most secure in you. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Church, test the teaching with your head so that you can follow the Spirit with your heart. Lastly, number three, test the teachers. So John's kind of sandwiching it here. He's engaging the mind. He's stirring the heart. And now he's going to close by, once again, engaging the mind. Test the teachers. If we're connecting the dots here, since we're to discern truth from falsehood based on people's views of Jesus and teachings of Jesus, and we're supposed to be following the true spirit to lead to a posture of victory over falsehood, then, very practically, we should listen to those who teach truth. And John provides this invaluable insight to know which are the teachers of God and which are the teachers of the world. You know what he says? Evaluate their followers. You can understand a lot about a leader by looking at those who follow them. What kind of things do they believe? What kind of lives do they lead? Are they marked by obedience to God's word? Are they known, like really known, by a robust love for one another and for their their neighbor, even those who disagree with them? If you want to evaluate a leader, look at who's following them. Those of the world speak the religion of the world and produce disciples of the world, and they rely on salvation by works. But those that speak the true gospel, those who produce disciples of Jesus Christ, rely on salvation by grace. Just as a tree is deemed to be healthy or unhealthy by the condition of its fruit, So a teacher is deemed to be faithful or false by the condition of the disciples they make. John says in confidence, knowing that he is an apostle himself who was inspired by God in writing the very words of God, says, whoever knows God listens to us. 
And that is good and right for the early church, you might think, that he's writing to. But what about us? Two thousand years later, how can we know who to trust and listen to now that the apostles are long gone? The answer is whoever is faithfully teaching the inerrant and sufficient word of God. The words and teachings of the disciples live on through the preaching, teaching, and study of the Bible, which is living and active. So the answer to the question, who are the true teachers, are the ones who teach in full alignment with God's word. In the final chapter of the Apostle Paul's final letter to his closest protege, Timothy, uh, he's writing from prison. He knows he's about to die. He knows this is his last correspondence with Timothy. And what's he say in the last chapter of the last letter? He affirms the word of God, that it is sufficient for salvation and for building up in the faith. And then listen to what he says in chapter 4, the last chapter of the last letter. I charge you in the presence of God... And of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, listen, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Listen to this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But they'll have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth. And wander off into myths. The call to the church is this. Teachers, whether it be the preachers, those teaching classes, those teaching Bible studies, small groups, to those committee members, to those one-on-one disciplers, to those parents who are raising children and teens alike, preach the word. Give people what they need to hear, despite what they may want to hear. And then for all Christians, for the entire church, here's the charge to you. Know your Bible, so that when you are taught, you will be able to recognize when something does not line up. We cannot afford to not test every teaching and every teacher we come across we got to do the work. And yes, we should be willing to learn. We should be teachable, but we should verify what we hear. We should be like the Bereans in Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things they were saying were so. I mentioned earlier there's two categories of false teaching. All religions and worldviews outside of Christianity deny Christ. But all cults within Christianity misrepresent Christ. Give me a couple minutes here. Both are threats. But the misrepresentation of Jesus Christ within so-called Christian teaching is far more dangerous for the church. Just like how the best counterfeit dollar bills are the ones that seem most closely resembling the real thing, So the most destructive heresies are those that seem closest to the truth. Misrepresenting Christ are those teachings that use the Bible but don't preach the Bible. They lean on the Word to support their own message, but they don't illuminate the Word to shine its message. 
And almost always, it's some form of Jesus plus message. A Jesus plus message. Jesus plus something else is needed for salvation. Jesus plus this other leader's teaching. Jesus plus another book. Jesus plus another mindset. But church, when you add anything to Jesus, you destroy him altogether. The prosperity gospel, which says Jesus will make you healthy and wealthy if you just believe enough and give enough. The social gospel, which says that addressing felt needs is the primary message of Christianity. The political gospel, which aligns Christianity to one candidate or one political party, draping the flag on the cross. People that promote these teachings, they might be good people. They might seem nice and look nice and articulate things well. They might not be evil, but they misrepresent Jesus and they represent the God of this world and false teaching leads to false living. So John says, test it. Test it all. You are an overcomer because you are in Christ and he overcame the world. And then know your Bible. Immerse yourself in the word of God personally, in community, corporately, and grow into the likeness of Christ. Be motivated to love your neighbor well. Be equipped to discern truth from falsehood in a world full of soft stories, false stories. In January 2018, Oprah told the world to speak your truth. The context of her speech is actually one I agree with. She was seeking to support women who had been abused by men in power, women in the hashtag MeToo movement who had been sexually assaulted years ago or becoming to overcome their fears and speak out. That's something I can get behind. That's something the church should get behind, exposing abuses of power that lead often to sexually deviant behavior that too often and for too long has been swept under the rug. But here's where I would just correct Oprah, that those women, by speaking up, are not speaking their truth. They're speaking the truth. Because truth separates right from wrong. Truth is not relative. And Jesus Christ is the epitome of truth, declaring, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the illumination of your word. We thank you that, even written thousands of years ago, that it is the most relevant, pressing, and important book for us to know today. We thank you that that is the means through which you reveal yourself. That is what your spirit reveals to us, that your word is true. That your personified word is true in Jesus. That your written word is true in the scriptures. And I pray that we would know that, not just to know it in our minds, but that it would shape our entire lives. I pray that we would not be arrogant about it. I pray that it would not stir us to make much of ourselves, but that true truth would equip us to love you and to love and serve our neighbor well and to be that salt and light we yearn to be as a church. And I pray even now as we sing and prepare our hearts for communion that you would engage our minds, stir our hearts anew for you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.